Welcome to Estradile Illusions. One of my great joys as a as a podcast host and a film critic is, uh, you know, each day is a, a brand new adventure in terms of the uh, stuff you get pitched and the opportunities you get. I'm, you know, I take great pride in being the the friend that other people come to when they want a, a break from the traditional uh, stuff that they are uh, watching or reading or, or listening to. I always have a outside the box recommendation and uh we've had a over the past couple of months we've had a couple of uh, opportunities to return to some of my Sundance favorites and uh I'm still really uh having already submitted the application for next year's Sundance I'm super excited that we're still getting to uh cover some some of the films that were there and one of my favorites was a film that I saw in January and and Ever since I've, I, with with all that's gone on in the world, I, I've thought constantly about how my view of it would have changed if uh, I, I'd first seen it in a in a post COVID world. But it's probably of all the Sundance films the most uh, fitting for this current era that we're living in. And it's uh, called Spaceship Earth, about the uh, Biosphere Two experiment in the '90s. And we're very fortunate to have one of the Biospherians with us. We have Dr. Mark Nelson. We're going to talk uh, biospheres, the film, and uh, all sorts of uh, exciting things. Uh, Dr. Nelson, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. Let's see. A brief bio sketch. I'm a first-generation uh, Jewish kid. From I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Queens. My parents came from Poland and Russia. I was told that the key to success in life was being a good student, so I did all of that, and I... Graduated from Dartmouth, only going there on a full scholarship was possible. Uh, and then I had the really great good fortune to meet up with the gang of explorers and innovators and creators uh, that are documented in Spaceship Earth. So in 1969, with my newly minted and completely useless Ivy League uh, education, I came out to Synergia Ranch uh, just outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is where I'm speaking to you now, and joined what would later become the Theater of All Possibilities, the Institute of Ecotechnics. I ran woodshops, planted orchards. We started ecotechnic projects around the world. After and, and then I had the amazing good fortune to be selected as a part of the first two-year closure experiment in Biosphere 2, which was... It's almost like it was yesterday, and it was also like maybe that was medieval history, but it's really relevant to our contemporary world. After Bias for Two, I'd fall in love with constructed wetlands, a very ecological way we had of recycling and treating our wastewater, i.e. our sewage. Um, so I went to the University of Arizona, then University of Florida, got myself a PhD, started an international firm called Wastewater Gardens International to implement these systems around the world. And I've continued doing a lot of the things that I've been doing before Biosphere 2, being an organic uh, farmer and orchardist, helping run the Institute and having a great deal of fun and adventure along the way. So for people who are not familiar with uh Biosphere Two, which was uh, which got a lot of press, and I, I I think a lot about how um, 
you know, all of the all of the clips that were featured in the film, all the CNN news coverage, I was like thinking to myself, oh, you know, we had a time before the 24-hour news cycle was just nothing but presidential uh, politics or even just kind of speculative news coverage versus like you could turn on the news back in the day and actually see people doing something interesting like uh, <laughs> like what you guys were doing. And I, I think back then, I, I just... You know, when people talk about the the degeneration of our, our media, I, I'm constantly reminded of of why. And I think John Allen, in a lot of ways, uh, and and the the projects that uh, he was excited about, and that all of you were excited about. Um, you know, he was really ahead of his time in terms of uh, thinking outside the box. And if we look at kind of the explosion of podcasts over the past 15 years or so, maybe even a little more. Um, I, I think he he kind of understood that there was an audience for for this kind of uh, I- expansion of a way of thinking. Yeah, no, totally. I we, we used to joke at Biosphere Two that we were fifty years ahead of our time, and it's kind of amazing what's happened in the. I guess now it's pushing thirty years, you know. But the world is kind of caught up, and the issues that we were dealing with, hell, we were dealing with them 20 years before Biosphere 2, is how do we make peace with the planet? How do we, you know, redesign everything that everything that we do, how we drive, how we, how we live, how we farm, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so that we don't harm our global biosphere, which I, th- I think is now at least not an obscure term like it was back in the 90s when we did Biosphere 2. But I think people are still not fully grokking, here's a 1960s term, they're not fully comprehending that the biosphere is not just this lovely, you know, adventure um, uh, Disney kind of scenery that we have. It is literally the life support of ourselves and every other living organism on the planet. Yeah, I mean, for for one of the things that I've been, uh, I was marveling when I when I first saw the documentary and uh, in in reading your book, uh, pushing your limits, I was, you know, reminded of the fact that that for two years you had to maintain an ecosystem where you essentially had a desert and a coral reef that were separated by uh, essentially a, a football field. Yeah, or contained within. I think it's one and a half football fields and two soccer fields or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, what was amazing, so I, I was expecting you to ask me to describe Bias for Two. Yes. And, you know, I know this is an audio podcast. You know, multitask and bring up some images of which there are plenty on on the web because Bias for Two is this audacious construction. It covered around uh, three acres and within it, and, and it had ceilings as high as 85 feet, like in our tropical rainforest to allow the trees to grow, because we actually planned Biosphere 2 to be a 100-year experiment. So within this virtually airtight structure, mostly glass space frame, so sunlight could power life like it does on Earth, we had packed a wilderness area, just one wing of the facility, with everything from a tropical rainforest, a savanna, which is a tropical grassland with trees, a thorn scrub, a fog coastal desert, a marsh mangrove area modeled on the Everglades, and still the world's largest human-made coral reef. 
you know, an ocean of a million gallons with about 50 coral species. And within the same structure, exchanging all the air and, and water and interacting in, in myriad ways, we had a human habitat, a little micro city for the eight biospherians, and a very intensive half acre farm that was beyond organic because, you know, when things cycle and interact so rapidly, we couldn't even use some of the sprays and practices that are allowed in organic farming because we wanted to keep the air and water and our food pristine clean. So it was a great model of high production and yet completely non-polluting. So all of this in one massive building. Yeah, and and uh, for for uh, listeners, I, I do. We um, one of the beauties of podcasting is when we have something like. Uh, topic like biosphere two we have a lot of people especially in the pre-covid era we had a lot of people who would be listening to us while commuting and now i guess that's true of a lot of people but uh also the people who would um you know be procrastinating at work you know if you're taking time out of if you're uh working while listening to this this is a great period to uh open up another tab and procrastinate and uh look up some of the pictures uh and i'd be remiss as a podcast that has done seven or eight Disneyland episodes. There is a bit, uh, there is a resemblance between uh, the Biosphere 2 and uh, Epcot and Disney World, which I think was a a Marvel, I I, I recall in your book you were describing with the architecture that um, the the architects of the Biosphere 2 were, were sort of keenly aware of the fact that this thing did have to look very beautiful or the media or people, uh, something that looked really good would uh, play better in terms of grabbing people's attention, which is obviously important when you're trying to interest them in something as uh, innovative as Biosphere 2. Well, it's even more profound than that, Ian. In fact, that was the first conflict that we had, and there were many. (laughs) The drama of Biosphere 2 started from day one when we brought together a pretty top-notch group of eclectic scientists and engineers. And the first question is, are we completely out of our minds or is it even possible to do what we have in mind, which is to make a mini biosphere so we can study uh, intensely the, the processes that underlie Earth's uh, ecology? And also, you know, we are also motivated by the long term future of humanity is to expand in space. And, yeah, we're going to go in a very simple way with hydroponic crops. But eventually, for our psychic health and ecological well-being, we're going to need to figure out how to bring biospheres and, and recreate them on the surface of Mars, Moon, and, you know, and beyond interstellar. So this conflict, the engineers looked at the drawings and they said, my God in heaven, you know, it's really difficult, almost impossible what you're asking us to do. And it's going to add a lot of cost to, you know, the creation, the engineering of a facility if it looks like, you know, the, these drawings. And our response, because, and this is hard to to realize in retrospect, but we thought that uh, locating this project in Oracle, Arizona, between Tucson and Phoenix, you know, it would be a quiet research facility. And because we also are entrepreneurial, we thought we would sell one to Disney, maybe Euro Disney or the one in Tokyo or 
to major cities around the world and we'd recoup our investment that way. When Biosphere 2 actually struck a nerve and attracted worldwide attention, I mean, we reached probably a billion people, and this is pre-internet, as you were alluding to. It, w- it took us totally by surprise. But, you know, one thing I love about uh, the modus operandi, so to speak, of the group that I got involved with and I'm still involved with is beauty is a value. And we were yes. not yes. We're, we're not going to be audacious enough, maybe insane enough, to build a biosphere and not make it beautiful. You know, after all, that this is the, the overwhelming impression an alien would get if they happened to come down to planet Earth. It's spectacular. It is so stunningly beautiful. And, you know, how could you contemplate making a biosphere that didn't pay some tribute? So in the architecture, you know, one of the things the architects did was they paid an homage to world architecture. So we had everything from geodesic domes, the Bucky Fuller invention, to ziggurat, you know, pyramids like you'd find in in Mayan uh, Mexico, you know, et cetera. And barrel vaults like in Babylonia covered the farm. So Biosphere 2 is a tribute to our biosphere and also to the humans. You know, I don't like it when deep ecologists and people get really down on humans. Yeah, we've caused a lot of problems. But on the other hand, we are a child of the biosphere and any problem we've made, we can fix. And we can get to that later. I will not be uh, (laughs) talked out of my inherent optimism and hope that humanity has intelligence for a reason. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I did have a, so the, the film covers, uh, most, most of it focuses on, on biosphere two, but probably the first half hour to 40 minutes focuses kind of on the origins of John Allen and the, uh, Institute of Ecotechnics. Were you involved in the building of the, um, Heraclitus, the ship? Uh, only, only occasionally. Because that that was the great uh, mitosis of the, well, we use the word and it's in the film, synergias. So this this is, it's a basic science term and it's a wonderful term because the the definition of the synergy is uh, something where the whole is, is the sum of the parts is less than what the whole is. So it's it's systems that are actually unpredicted and they have special powers. So, you know, I think we get a dose in high school chemistry and, and physics that the universe is running down and entropy is ever present. But actually, life is a synergetic property and uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So we like to call ourselves synergists because and this was the formula Well, here I am, you know, I'm post-college. My parents want me to become a professional, a doctor, a medical doctor, or a lawyer or some such thing. And I'm thinking, I want to do something, as you're saying, more out of the box. I want to be inventive. I want to be, and here's a 60s slogan that we should revive and revivify. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And this is at the time when, you know, I think the Earth Day was happening, either the year I came to New Mexico or the year after. But there was suddenly this burst of uh, awareness and concern about the situation of 
our surrounding, our environment, what, what we're doing to it. So Synergy, we decided that we would do theater, work on ecology, and be self-supporting by running enterprises, and we would do all three concurrently. And that, to me, was a magic formula because I think it's so depressing to be, you know, to be told you have to specialize, you have to pick one thing that you're going to do for your career, and I guess, oh, thank you, modern capitalism, you have your your holidays and your weekends to amuse yourself. <laughs> but you know, the idea of doing as an art expression theater working on ecology and innovative ecological projects and starting enterprises and, and not being dependent on, you know, foundations and governments, but actually being in the rough and tumble of making things economically work. This sounded to me like a balanced human life that would be worth living. Well, like, I mean, you're, you're, you're striking a chord that we, uh, we talk about a lot on this show as, um, I, I, one thing I found in in grad school that that kind of bothered me was um, my my provi- uh, my professor would um, they'd always like yell at me that my writing was too colorful and I'm like just like just think about what you're saying to me you're saying that I should make my work less interesting I shouldn't try and engage with people and I came from more of a creative background I'd been uh, published a couple times before I went to do my masters and I was just constantly furious about it and I, I would think all the time like. Often uh, universities, they'll have uh, a college of arts and sciences, but it's in a lot of ways, really, it's more of uh, arts or sciences. And in undergrad, my uh, favorite roommate was a math and physics uh, double major. And I I think that it was very enriching in my life to like constantly be exposed to things that were uh, outside of uh, outside of that. And it I mean, I've definitely found a, a kindred spirit in, in the, the, the message of, of your group, just pursuing new things. I mean, how many people can say that they just decided to go and build a boat and, and, and do it and then, and then move on to uh, the space race, which I have some questions about as well. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, well, Synergy Ranch, you know, I, when I first came out here, I had never seen, you know, growing up in New York and then college in New England, you know, it rains uh, and trees grow and, you know, the arid Southwest and its history of ecological devastation, I had never seen anything look as horrible. I mean, it was windswept. The, you know, there was a few old apricot trees, uh, but mainly the, the largest trees around were dead from previous attempts uh, to grow things. And so we set ourselves a little, and that's the reason we could buy this 1969 160 acres, two good wells, lots of old ranch buildings uh, for $50,000. We put 14 and a half down and, you know, 10% of all the enterprises that we started, you know, uh, kicked back to keep the ranch going and to pay off the remaining amount of money. But it was a perfect ecotechnic challenge. And, and, uh, you know, what I was saying before, you know, humans, we are in integral we are part and of the the fiber of the biosphere. You know, there's no separation between us and nature. So we took our motto and our goal as we're going to turn this desertified, uh, wrecked land into a life o- oasis. 
We're going to plant, you know, thousands of trees. We're going to build soil. We're going to bring life back, you know, to this area. And we're going to do it not not as we do conservation. And I'm all for national parks and marine zones where fishing is either restricted or forbidden. We're going to do it in the midst of having, and in those years, we had 20 to 30 people apprenticing and interning and, and learning how to be a synergist and an echo technician. You know, we're going to do that in the midst of intense human activity, not by excluding the people for a century and letting the land recover. And so it, it became a model. Why do something that conventional economics is going to do anyway? Uh, and when you when you pick challenging projects like, oh, let's work with a thousand acres of mountainside secondary forest in Puerto Rico, which, you know, by present economics is asymptotic to worthless or the project I, I spent a decade in New Mexico. And then, you know, we wanted to have projects in different biomes to, to test our capabilities and also to give us some insight into the vast diversity of the, of the world. We went to Australia and the government gave us 5,000 acres, 5,000 acres of land. If we could regenerate it and plant improved grasses, they would sell it to us at a dollar sixty, no, four dollars, four dollars an acre. Wow! And th- and that was a fair market valuation. So you know, if you're if you're an institute, and of course, you know, later on, as the film uh, explains, Ed Bass, who uh, poor chap, uh, is the heir to a Texas pile of money. Um, he became you know totally hands on synergist and working with the Institute of Ecotechnics, but we still kept that kind of morale that we're going to, we're going to make what $1 in a conventional capitalist organization, we're going to make it do the work of $10 because we're going to work for free kind of as sweat equity and for a stake in the profits that if we're successful, this enterprise will accomplish and so early on, by the way, and we can go into how devastating, you know, market forces and the present iteration of, of, of global capitalism is. But we said we have to work on projects that are self-sustaining and enduring, i.e. it has to have a bottom line. But we're going to be also focused on the top line improvement, making the land, you know, more diverse, you know, supporting more life. And we're going to do those two things simultaneously. One of the interesting things that I found uh, in your book is uh, you talk about the uh, relationship between soil and uh, air quality as like a, as soil acting as, as kind of a, a filtration system, which um, I mean, is, is, is not really the, the kind of subject that, uh, a feature length film is necessarily going to dedicate lots of time to saying like, look at how awesome this is. But uh, I mean, it's important. And I think that um, especially the kind of generation that, that listen to podcasts and enjoy this kind of material is very, uh, is much more eco um, uh, conscious than, than uh, our, and I was about to say ancestors or parents. That's not really. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and, and you know, there's a good side to the, Oh, let me not overstate it. The ecological catastrophe that we are staring, you know, 
straight in the eye, we can see the whites of their eyes at this point. The white, the whites of the eyes of global climate change, you know, the mass degradation of, of vast areas of the earth. That kind of fixes your mind on what is a winning solution. So, I mean, I love it. And I was an organic farmer for a long time before I, you know, found out that making organic soils, that is a, a way to sequester, to store carbon, to take it out of the atmosphere. And so similarly, in Biosphere 2, you know, our deathly fear was that we would have the worst indoor air pollution problem ever. Uh, I think probably all your listeners have heard the term sick building syndrome. Yes. You know, and, and it's a consequence. Oh, we make our buildings, you know, really tightly sealed now. Of course, that's trivially sealed compared to Biosphere 2, because in the wintertime, we want to, you know, conserve the heat that we're heating our houses. And in summertime, we you know, we, we want to preserve our precious air conditioning. So if we make a, a, a system that's going to leak less than 1% per month, and we have to have all this machinery inside, even with all the screening we did of the equipment, we were really afraid that we would have buildup of these trace gases, which you know caused the indoor air pollution issue. And fortunately, there was a professor at the University of Arizona. He and his brother had come from Germany, where this technology is known. And engineers had figured out, you know, from sewage plants and nasty smelling factories, that if they took the air and they ran it through the soil, you know, and usually those kind of places have, you know, some grim looking soil around it, you know, that exposed all those trace gases to soil microbes. And, you know, we had another, another uh, motto. We're big on mottos, as you can tell. <laughs> and so one of, one of our consulting microbiologists, we gave him the, a talk at one of our early biosphere workshops when we were planning the project. Microbes, the unsung heroes of the biosphere. And when you get, you know, when you start to look at the wonderful world of those small critters that are at least equal in number to the human cells in our own ecosystem called a human body, they're, they're crucial in, in completing all kinds of cycles and making nutrients available and detoxifying nasty stuff. So it was one reason that rather than going aeroponics or hydroponics with the farm inside Biosphere 2, we, we use soil. And, you know, using that technology, uh, soil biofiltration or soil bed reactors, we actually could force all of the air of Biosphere 2 in a massive facility, as we were talking about, through that soil in less than 24 hours. And that would expose and uh, eliminate the problem of any of those trace gases building up to where they would cause either human or other problems. So it's, I fell in love with that system and also with constructed wetlands. Okay, we have these plants, but it's really the microbes in, in the root systems of the wetland plants that also detoxify sewage. and you know, we can turn sewage into spectacular, beautiful, you know, lush areas with high, high diversity. I found it fascinating. I, I read at one point in, in your book that, um, so the, the coral reef, which um, I think one of, well, I have two two strands of thought, right now, as is kind of typical for a podcast, but um, 
I'm thinking of um, you. You wrote at one point in the the coral reef that you were um, not not uh, you didn't have much swimming experience before, and you would the coral reef was uh, you guys would uh, snorkel and have a lot of fun in there. But you were uh, a bit self conscious of the fact that I mean the the whole biosphere too was oh, oh you had visitors constantly around around the grounds and stuff and you would notice that there would be people kind of watching if you guys were were snorkeling in the coral reef i thought that was uh kind yeah of, no uh, I, I i had never snorkeled and I, I am a really bad swimmer i'll tell you i sink like a stone so it's really good if you put a a, a wetsuit on and some flippers you know hell you know you feel like you're an olympic swimmer no so i I, what I was talking about is visitors didn't arrive at the at the site. I, I forget now until nine or ten in the morning, and so I would go out really early because I didn't want my awkward, uh, you know, snorkeling one hundred and one lesson to be observed by a lot of people. <laughs> but but it was a funny thing in Biosphere too. And as I say, you know, once it did ca- capture the world's imagination, it was literally like uh, people making a pilgrimage. People started, you know, finding out where it was and they would drive up and we had no tour program. We were completely unprepared for this. So they started coming up by the dozens and the hundreds and the thousands. And then we said, well, you know, Biosphere 2 is teaching us something. It's teaching us that one of the most important things we need to do is give people a, a lesson in, in what a biosphere is and how people can be working and living inside a biosphere without harming it. So we started a, a tour program, and it was one of the best things about Biosphere 2 that it reached so many millions and hundreds of millions of people. You know, as you, as you were saying, I mean, we were on the front page of virtually every, you know, U.S. and, and half the world's newspapers. Yeah, I, I mean that. I, I can only think of how many uh, podcasts would have would have set up shop and basically. I mean, even um, you could add like live streams within the biosphere, which which uh, would have been cool. They do that um, with uh, even with uh, election polling. You could watch those live streams or uh, all sorts of stuff, which is fascinating. The other coral reef uh, thing, more more little more scientific than snorkeling. Um, you would remove eleven pounds of algae from the coral reef that would then get that recycled into um, the, 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 the biosphere. And I mean, this is like when we're, when we're talking about what, what, what the core, one of at least one of the core missions uh, of biosphere two was to prepare people for, you know, there's all the talk of getting to Mars, but what happens when you get to Mars, you have to have something like this in order for people to survive. And basically everything that you have has to be recycled because, um, you know, Mars, uh, to, to our knowledge, is not abundant with coral reefs or algae or that kind of stuff. <laughs> not as far as we know, unless they're really, really deep underground. There may be life underground, but I really doubt that we're going to find a living coral reef. But, you know, but the thing is that, you know, the, what's beautiful about it, and I think we sort of coined this term, biospherics, the study of biospheres, both at the large Earth scale and, you know, Lord knows there are so many planets in just our uh, galaxy that there are undoubtedly planet-sized biospheres by the, you know, galore. Uh, but everything you say about a small biosphere is also true about a space biosphere, and it's also about planet Earth's biosphere. Everything does recycle. There is no waste. 
this is, you know, one of the things that when you have a really small system, you know, you get it. And it's really difficult. I, I was talking about that biospheric education for, you know, for the, the people that we reached around the world. And I go to obscure places, you know, doing my projects and I've yet to go anywhere. I mean, a little Indian village, you know, in Chiapas in Mexico, a fellow, you know, talking about grad students, fellow grad student of mine at the University of Florida was going to be the first PhD in environmental engineering. And we went back to his little home village and it was the sweetest thing. We found a little projector and I did a little slideshow and these kids said, man, we've seen these images. And you coming to here to speak is like, you know, an astronaut just landed here. So it's just incredible how much, how, how many people Biosphere 2 reached. And why I'm kind of thankful about Spaceship Earth is that the lessons and the relevance of Biosphere 2 is 10 times, 100 times more now, now that we're really up against the wall and facing the problems that our conventional approach to a, our extractive approach to the biosphere is produced. Did, I mean, this is, I don't know how answerable this question is, but, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of the, the journey to Mars was uh, at least presented as like a big, big topic on your minds. But I mean, did, did, did your team have any kind of idea that the, the sort of state of, uh, climate change and the, the dire, um, stakes yes. that we're in now that, that that was kind of as as imminent as it was yeah i mean totally actually and, and you know one of the greatest disasters that we faced or you know we wanted to avoid inside biosphere 2 is analogous to climate change although um it's different but you know people people who are looking at the data from biosphere 2 and from the test module that we built really worried that CO2, we'd have a runaway CO2 rise. And, you know, over certain uh, concentrations in the atmosphere, that really, you know, messes up the ability of green plants to photosynthesize, and it actually becomes injurious and finally can kill people. So, you know, we went in there kind of on that page. And Kyoto, the, the Kyoto Agreement, which the U.S. never signed, you know, happened in 1992. And I think, you know, when I look back at, at Biosphere 2 and, you know, during the time inside, we became very aware that the atmosphere was critical to our, our, our health and our longevity. If we we're going to stay in there for two years, we were going to have to become ap atmospheric stewards. We were going to have to take a hand in, you know, helping our green plants, storing cut biomass, doing, you know, tweaking that system every which way we could to prevent that. And I think that's kind of relevant. You know, climate change, you know, what, what disempowers people, I think, is that they just look at, oh, there's 7 billion of us, and what impact can I have? And that's an illusion. Inside Biosphere 2, we often said to each other, there's no small actions in here, because when you have such a small atmosphere, you know, tiny things have repercussions. And that's true on planet Earth. You know, so we have to change the way we're thinking. And your decisions of how you live your life and how you do this and how you do that, they are critical. They are super important. And they have significance. 
this this goes back to you know I think that the greatest gift that Biosphere 2 gave to me and the other people lucky enough to have lived inside it is that we understood deeply inside our body that we were metabolically indivisible from the biosphere. Every breath of air that we took, and we didn't take those for granted, especially when oxygen began mysteriously declining over 16 months, every bite of food, every drop of water, you know, we knew the cycles, we knew the system. And, and, and that's why it was such a beautiful way to teach people about biospheres, because the Earth's biosphere is enormous at a human scale. But here's a system that, you know, we could walk around it in 20 minutes. Leisurely tours around the biosphere might take half an hour. And you could see a little, you know, a little uh, glimpse of the diversity of wilderness areas, biomes, a human activity, a farm, you know, all those technical systems. I wish we had made the um, visitors appreciate all of the technology that was down in the basements of Biosphere 2, what we call the technosphere. Uh-huh. But anyway, I mean, there's a number of things I would have done differently <laughs> if we do another Biosphere, and who knows, the fat lady hasn't sung. I am, um, well... It's like about five five different questions I could uh, go off on. Um, hopefully, we'll get to them all. I it was it was fine. I had just I had spent a, a fair amount of time in Arizona the past two years and um, was back there actually in March after I would have seen the film in January. And I was always thinking like, a this climate is not really <laughs> conducive to a project like this. But I guess maybe that was kind of uh, the 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 fun of it. And I was always, I was in Scottsdale and I was, there was at one point I Googled like, how far is Oracle? And uh, I don't think that was feasible. An hour. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That would have, yeah, that would have been fun. Uh, maybe I'm not too well, far the, in LA. They're, they're open on a limited basis, you know, obviously with the COVID uh, restrictions. Well, so my next question was kind of related to COVID. I read somewhere in your book that, that, um, kind of either the consensus from you or the rest of the team was the uh, kind of the, the third act of the experiment was, was kind of the toughest on morale and whatnot. And I, I think that relates well to um, this, this current era in, in, I mean, it's, it's hard to really say what arc of, of COVID we're in, but, but we're, we're in, in, in we're well into you know, the, the various stages, you know, spring, summer, uh, not fall and now, now winter and COVID fatigue is, is wild, uh, among people and like, well, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. <laughs> and I, I think it's hard for, well, I, I, everyone's sick of it, but uh, that's not really a good, uh, you know, your individual actions with this, uh, do, do actually, uh, play a part in, in whether or not we can get this thing under control. Yeah, and, you know, the COVID thing is really interesting. And it was so funny, you know, I, I wish we'd run into each other at Sundance because that turned out to be the last film festival before COVID shut everything down and yeah. all the film festivals went virtual. Yeah, and so, I mean, the human drama of being inside Biosphere 2, I, I love to talk about it because it's so interesting. But I, I totally empathize. You know, right now I'm on, at Synergia Ranch and we took precautions and we take precautions big time, but we kind of have a unique situation is that there's about 10, you know, uh, residents here. And I guess we're like a 
a pandemic pod. You know, we've all been through quarantine and the people come out here to volunteer. They get a test and they go into quarantine and all that kind of stuff. So I really empathize to people and who really miss, you know, having fun and being close to other people. And in Biosphere 2, you know, our fantasies were of two types. One was for food and drink that we couldn't uh, grow or brew inside Biosphere 2. But the other one was just simply to, you know, imagine meeting the same seven people at, I, I did calculate it once, something, something over 2,100 meals. And so, you know, our fantasy would be at being at a party or a, a gathering and running into strangers. So, I mean, I, I kind of get that the lockdown has probably produced this enormous desire of people to mingle, to hang out, to meet new people, and, and also, you know, to be in close proximity with their friends. You know, fortunately, inside Biosphere 2, you know, we, we had a primitive, primitive email system, but we could call people and we could meet people at the glass and, you know, talk via two-way radios or, or telephones inside and outside. But, you know, that's an inherent uh, desire. And even living in such a beautiful world and in such an exciting world, I mean, I, I really didn't want to come out of Biosphere 2. And I, I told management I would go in on another crew because... Here was this beautiful world. We were really doing cutting-edge exploration science, and we were discovering new things, and everything inside Biosphere 2 made sense. Have you have you made banana wine since you've been out of the, the biosphere? <laughs> I'm not much a brewer. I go through lots of bottles, but no. No, you know, and the thing is that we, you know, it's funny. We, we watch some programs about, so-called primitive people in the South Pacific. And their diet was heavily uh, bananas, papayas, and sweet potatoes. And, you know, I'm sure they made uh, a good rice uh, beverage, you know, to, a good intoxicant. So, yeah, we, we brewed everything we could. We, we Banana wine was probably the best thing we did. We had a rice, rice beer, kind of like the Tibetan chung, uh -huh. And because beets grew so well and we got so tired of them, we tried with the help of a, a European Space Agency Belgian researcher. He gave us a recipe for beet whiskey, and that was truly indescribably awful. But, you know, <laughs> but since it was the only intoxicant, we drank it anyway. <laughs> and when I was – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, when I was in Australia, um, I, I discovered I did a semester abroad there. I discovered that the beetroot was a popular uh, burger topping, or oh, they yeah, put right. it on right. Yeah, <laughs> and so so when uh, when I was watching the film and, and reading your book, and um, people were, were talking about their their uh, fatigue of, of beetroot, I, I could uh, I was just kind of laughing because when I when I when I would explain to uh, my American friends that that this uh that the beetroot was used in this way they'd be like oh gross and imagine I, I i you know the the food fantasy uh i i can imagine was a huge thing but uh, i mean you the, the degree of innovation to the food uh you talk a lot in the book about all the the um just constant desire to uh make make different recipes and stuff i mean that that's a very natural human desire and and something that 
you know, obviously everybody has to keep in mind, especially, you know, a Mars expedition or, or that. I mean, you've, you've really got to get inventive because once you get out there, that's you've, what you've got is what you've got. I know, you know, and if you actually read about uh, the conditions that astronauts and cosmonauts have in space, it's awful. Space food is, you know, much worse than your worst processed meal. I mean, uh, I think, wasn't it some astronauts smuggled a roast beef sandwich up? Yes, the, the, the crumbs were supposed to be. Yeah, because yeah. they sell um, in, in like uh, science stores, they would sell the, the astronaut ice cream that was basically, it looked a lot like cardboard. And uh, I, I, I actually, you and I have something in common. When I was uh, in Arizona for having uh, surgery, my, my jaw was, uh, for a while, I, I could only eat broth and applesauce and mashed potatoes. So I, I had, we've, we both had quite a few food fantasies in, in that state. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because uh, everything was researched in Viastra 2. And, you know, the film doesn't really state it, but it just, it was really a matter of serendipity or bad luck, you know, for, for some of us. Roy Walford, our, our in-house, you know, he was a biospherian who was a medical doctor. His specialty was, was uh, life extension yeah. using a calorie-restricted diet. And so he was the only one really happy that he had seven people who couldn't cheat and we could, you know, we did measure every bit of harvest and every bit of food that we consumed, you know, but for the rest of us, it was like, man, let's grow more. Let's become better farmers. And, you know, so I took the, the lead in our, what we called victory gardens, every little space that was available that had sunlight falling on it that wasn't uh, nurturing a food crop in our agriculture, you know, soon had uh, that situation remedied. And we became better farmers. And I think we grew two or three tons more food the second year. We were still, you know, by, by American standards on a calorie restricted diet. Yeah, I, I, I found that especially fast it also i mean it just plays up the the nature of of kind of the the adventure the explorer the all all hands on deck like the the eight biospherians you each came in with a, a certain specialty but you know when, once you're actually in there you know the things that you've got to you know everybody's kind of got to pitch in in every sort of field and uh you know farming i'm thinking of a, another uh funny anecdote from your uh book about um one of one of your fellow biospherians was uh, a baby goat was born in the biosphere and uh you were doing uh, one of one of the biospherians was doing a tv spot and showing the baby goat and you remarked like you know what happens if the uh tv people ask what's going to happen to that baby goat <laughs> yeah it was good morning america but it could, could well have been another of those shows yeah they didn't ask that question uh you know it's funny you know well i'm i'm you know a perfect city kid it's just the last 50 years, you know, I've done other things. But, you know, you know, from what we heard from our friends on the outside and from tour guides, one of the, the kind of mundane things that we did in Biosphere 2 was endlessly fascinating to Americans, Europeans, and even Japanese and other visitors, is that we slaughtered our own animals. We did it in, in as humane a way as possible using a stun gun. But, you know, they, you know, there were more questions about that. I guess it's analogous to, you know, if an astronaut gives a talk, there's going to be endless questions about 
how you go potty, how you go to the toilet in space. It was kind of like that. And that, you know, to me was one of the the least interesting, you know, hey, you know, a few hundred years ago, we all knew how to do this. And almost all of us were farmers. But that reality is is quite changed. And, you know, I I love it now. After Bias for Two, I went back to and continued my organic farming and I love, you know, young people really have this desire. We want to learn how to grow food in a, in a healthy way. And, you know, that that's, again, one of these things that is tapping into more organic farmers and more organic ranching and farming is part of the solution to our ecological problems. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I have to, I think that one of, if, if I had been in the biosphere, one of my, uh, biggest issues would have been I would have wanted to carry the uh the baby monkey the Galago. Uh, I'm Yeah, Galago. Miss Galago, there we go. I yeah, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Um I don't think I would have been able to just leave 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 that critter in his uh in his spot <laughs> at all. I'd probably want to sleep with it and bring it around, carry it with me wherever, teach it how to snorkel, that kind of They've stuff. They've got sharp claws. Oh yeah, that kind of that's kind of like uh, <laughs> when you were, hold them. They, they were not they were not a pet chimpanzee. Oh well, that's uh... <laughs> you know. In fact, in fact, that you know, we couldn't have pets inside, and I think you know we were good pals with uh, William Burroughs. Uh, that's a whole other story, and I think he was the one who said, you know, you really should have a lemur, and we did the investigation, and lemurs didn't quite work. But it was also for it was kind of for semi remote um, companionship. And, you know, it was a great thing to encounter a Galago on your night watch around there. I I know I recount the story of one day and and we had new Galagos born inside Biosphere 2 as one of the babies was up on a fairly slick space frame above the ocean. And it looked like it was really having difficulty, you know, keeping its balance and getting a grip. And I think work stopped for about an hour as we were transfixed by the sight of this uh, Galago, you know, coping with this difficulty 20 feet above our our, uh, our coral reef ocean. So they were entertaining. It was a riot. You know, there, w- there was a right across from our dining room was the savannah. And there was a line of uh, acacia, African acacia trees lining a, a stream. And it was kind of the highway for Galagos to go from the rainforest down to the desert. And, you know, so it was fairly frequent. We'd look up from our dinner and we'd see a Galago, you know, just wrapped looking at, you know, eight human beings having dinner and conversing. And we were wrapped looking at a Galago looking in at us. So, you know, it, it definitely was a great idea to have a small primate inside Biosphere 2. Yeah, that that's... I have a one of the limits of uh, an audio only podcast is uh, I have to verbally communicate how much I'm smiling at the thought of a uh, Galago. I'm glad you mentioned uh, William S. Burroughs. He's he's always been um, uh, when I was in grad I was in grad school for uh, English and comparative literature, and um, I gave I I, I have a, a story that I think John Allen would would probably appreciate because I was giving a presentation on the uh, beat generation and Burroughs was always kind of my favorite of that. He was the kind of the elder statesman of the of the beat generation. He was older than like uh, Allen Ginsberg or Jack Kerouac. 
and I was giving a presentation, and we got into this huge argument, uh, the whole class, because oh, my professor hated, hated, hated William Burroughs, and she's like, <laughs> she's like, nobody, nobody in academia teaches him anymore. He's he, and really? she was trying to say to me, That's he's not relevant. Yeah, go ahead. Well, she would say like he's not relevant, he, and I would say, well, like you you can argue that he's not you can try and argue that he's not relevant that that nobody would teach him but he's definitely if you're going to teach the beat generation you can't do it without william burroughs because all of them loved him so like like tough shit lady and um i i, I think i think in terms of um you know there was kind of a there's kind of a clash a narrative in um the the film and and your your book that you know the the kind of the hardcore academics would would kind of snub their noses at uh, the the people without advanced degrees, and you know, as somebody who left uh, academia, uh, I, I, my sympathies tend to lie more with John, the John Allens of the of of that dynamic. Well, you know, John uh, was a trained metallurgical engineer and mining engineer, and he got a, a scholarship, so he has a MBA from Harvard Business School. Except that, you know, unlike most graduates of Harvard Business School who are engaged in more efficiently and profit-maximizing way of destroying people's, people's lives in the biosphere, he's taken that uh, economic insight into how you can create alternative economies. You know, and he also, he was a, a labor union organizer in Chicago to some, let us just say, euphemistically, very left-wing unions. And my parents, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a red diaper uh, boy from, from New York. You know, my parents, you know, they became secular as, as opposed to Orthodox Jews like their, their parents had been. And they were very much into the, the hope of, of socialism. And, you know, so it's so taboo in the United States that nobody even studies Marx anymore. And, you know, okay, uh, communism was a complete failure, and a lot of people who profess to be Marxists are not doing anything that's worth emulating. But his analysis of, of uh, how capitalist system operates is really important. And so one of the ways that we were, I was alluding to, we were trying to make really uh, – scarce economics do much more than people would think is because we kind of uh, picked up from Marx and from other thinkers the importance of owning your means of production and land. And if you want yeah, to do I, something, yeah, that that's kind of, you know, Marx 101. And, and, you know, another part of Marx that I think is profoundly uh, true, truer now than than even in his day is that in the capitalist system, the worker is alienated from the fruits of his labor. And that's kind right. of profound. That's really profound. I mean, my brother is a psychiatrist, and he finally fled hospitals because he realized that insurance companies treated him like he was on an assembly line. And he went back into private practice. But, you know, I mean, everybody who works for a living, you know, uh, under other people's terms in our system is alienated from the fruits of their labor. So the first enterprise that I started at City Gear Ranch to earn my way is a couple of us started a wood shop and we learned by doing and we made rustic, you know, you can dance on it kind of tables. 
and we did everything from you know buying the wood at local you know wood yards to you know having a wood shop finishing it selling it so you know i know that you know x number of my chairs and doors and windows and cabinets are all over albuquerque and santa fe i'm not alienated from that i know the people who bought it one insight that um you wrote in your book that uh stuck out at me because it 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 I had a similar, uh, I had a disagreement in in grad school along the similar lines. You wrote, like, when you were going to do your PhD thesis, um, you were encouraged to, I have it written, uh, it it might not be a direct quote, but I I wrote it out. Don't make your research proposal so detailed that you can't pursue what's most interesting. Now, when I was uh, doing my master's and they were talking about, like, uh, PhD theses and stuff, like, they say, like, you want to, in, in your research, carve out, you want to find, like, a little space between two things that have already been researched. And you want to, <laughs> like, you want to make, you want to make, a, you want to contribute, like, a little thing in between the space. And I'm sitting there listening to that, like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Like, I, I don't agree with that. I think you should go pursue your interests and, you know, worry about compiling all of that when it's time to, you know, publish the thing and, and go and defend it. Yeah, you know, I had the great good good fortune uh, to work with and, and do my PhD under H. T. Odom, O. D. U. M. He and his brother Eugene E. P. Odom, they invented a new approach to ecology called systems ecology, and H. T. was further is further famous because he basically invented uh, the new discipline that we desperately need more of, which is called ecological engineering where you can buy an engineering mindset so you can analyze and look for efficiency and all this stuff. But the ecology is you try to use natural functions as much as possible. And so you you brought up a a while ago, you know, this amazing thing that soils can purify air and microbes and wetland plants can purify shit. (laughs) You know, so ecological engineering was kind of what uh, Biosphere 2 was all about. And, um, yeah, any, anyway, so that's another emerging field that really gives hope that we can bring together these two important disciplines. And you're alluding to it's really tragic that our society thinks it's normal to segregate scientists here and artists and, you know, other other types of expression somewhere else. And they even do it within science, like, like you're saying. I mean, that that's the model is do some small-scale research, get your PhD, go and teach other people to look for small, doable little items. No, we need big thinkers. You know, so there's there's uh, what Jim Lovelock, the Gaia hypothesis creator, called academic apartheid. And, you know, people can't talk to each other. And I, I know I described it in Pushing Our Limits, but one of the dramas... Uh, in making Biosphere 2 is getting engineers to speak and understand ecology and ecologists to understand engineering because we needed them both to be on the same page. The engineers had to implement the visions and the desires of the ecologists and the, the ecologists had to put in numbers so an engineer could help them accomplish creating a, a, a viable rainforest on half an acre, for example. 
Yeah, I, I I had that actually below that quote. I had the the sort of the the inherent conflict between engineers and ecologists. The the resistance uh, at one point you had said that uh, the ecologists were were hesitant to uh, want to have the uh, uh, animals inside the biosphere because they were afraid they would die. Which I mean, you know, what's the you need to do an, if you're doing an experiment, you have to kind of except the fact that, you know, things can happen, but you're doing it to, to learn something new from that. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, that's a wonderful story. I had, I had so much respect. I, I guess, you know, although my degree is in engineering, I'm kind of more an ecologist type. But, you know, the, the high side of engineers is they, you know, they pride themselves on saving people's lives. You know, bridges don't fall down normally. You know, buildings don't fall down. And when they realized that all of the brilliant and really there was some amazing engineering to create Biosphere 2 and make it airtight, that all of that was not going to keep the people or, or anything inside healthy. That was going to be the, the role of, the, of all the organisms inside, especially the microbes. And that was frustrating to, to them. But then when they finally got it, I mean, that's a situation on planet Earth, too. You know, we can, you know, we can marvel at our cities and the latest, greatest, you know, automobile and gadgets and all this stuff. But the underlying reality is that it's the life on on our planet that keeps us healthy. And that's profound. You know, so so one of the other relevances and, and let me tip my um metaphorical hat to the Russians. The Russians were a great help in Biosphere 2, and we were originally inspired by rediscovering the work of one of their great thinkers, kind of the Russian equivalent of Darwin, a guy named Vernatsky, who had understood that the biosphere isn't just a passenger on planet Earth, but has profoundly shaped and altered the surface of the Earth. It's been here in different guises for 4 billion years after all. So that really inspired us. In the, and in that Russian tradition, the Vernatsky tradition, he saw the great duality as the technosphere that humans have, have created and continue to innovate and the biosphere. And that these two elements have to be brought into harmony if we're going to have a successful life on planet Earth. And I think that lesson, so inside Biosphere 2, that necessity of harmonizing the technosphere with that little mini biosphere was not some pie in the sky, we're going to do it by 2050 or 2100. This needs to be done now. This needs to be you know, designed before we even build this structure. How do we produce waves and not suck up and kill all of the life that we have in the ocean, for example? So redesigning our technosphere, I think, is also one of the great lessons of Biosphere 2. And I think, you know, if we formulated that, it's not just that we need to switch to renewable energy, which we do, uh, but we have to rethink. And what an opportunity, because a lot of the things that we live with are not the best solution. They are e either the easiest one that was conceivable or the most profitable when that technology came. It wasn't inevitable that we'd use fossil fuels to power transportation, but that was a you know a simple and profitable path. You know, so to me the opportunity is we need to redesign everything that we do. We need to redesign a technosphere 
that can not only sustain but regenerate our biosphere. What a are great, you, are you, what a great challenge. That's a challenge yeah. for our generation and for generations as long as humans are on the planet. And it's a challenge we will also take into space. So I, I take it you're you're probably from from what I've gathered a, a fan of the the Green New Deal and the need to kind of reinvigorate our broken infrastructure. Yeah, I, I don't like to talk about specific politics, but it, it's really clear that we need new approaches. Um, yeah, yeah, and and you know as you're saying, you know we were ahead of the curve, you know we were deadly afraid, and it, it you know it goes beyond climate. You know, it, it goes back to the fundamental relationship we have with our biosphere. You know, why do we, you know, consider it acceptable the amount of forests that we uh, destroy every year? Industrial agriculture, you know, turning entire regions of our planet, entire states of the U.S. into corn and wheat production, this monoculture extractive idea. You know, so when I give talks, you know, and people say, you know, what's something that I can do? I say the starting point is for you to, to throw out the idea that you're separate than the, from the environment. You need, to, yeah. you need to embrace that you are part and parcel of the biosphere. You wouldn't live a second without it. And the biosphere needs us. We've, we've now created enough damage that we're going to need a lot of human creativity and ingenuity and love we need to love our biosphere and act as if we do love it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, as we as we start to wrap up, I, there was a question that came to me yesterday that I, I realized uh, on this podcast we we featured documentary filmmakers all the time. Uh, often they're subjects. This is the first time we featured a subject of a documentary without the the director and. I, in some instances, it would be kind of hard if the director was also on the the podcast to say to the subject, "How do you you know rate rate what a job uh, the the director did if the, if they're also just right there?" But um, what do you what, what were your thoughts on uh, the way that that Spaceship Earth presented your story? Oh, you know, I I, I encourage you to have Matt Wolf on your program. I, I did a lot of uh, two and three way conversations with Matt with Linda Lay and other biospherian and, you know, with people from uh, the Natural History Museum in Washington or the Bucky Fuller Institute. No, I'm, I'm totally happy with that. You know, it was really a labor of love. And I think, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it, I think, four times now. I'm being get some emotional distance. I think it was a remarkable, remarkable achievement that, you know, unfortunately, my group was also – both we love to make film and we thought what we were doing was important, perhaps historic, that he had 600 hours of archival video and, and wow. film and, and Super 8 and whatever format of material to work with. No, I mean, it was a, it's an amazing film. It's a complex story. Yeah, I wish he didn't even mention the Institute of Egotechnics. And Matt said, I was hitting them with so many other terms, you know, I thought that would be overload. And to me, like ecotechnics is the heart of it because we understood back in 1969 that eco and techno needed to shake hands and, you know, start dating uh, more than platonically if we're going to have a future on the planet. But, hey, you can't do everything in, in, you know, an hour and 45 minutes. And what's packed into that film is absolutely brilliant. 
Well, you know, you, you mentioned the runtime. I and mean, one thing I've been thinking of, I get pitched uh, tons of documentary films and also documentary series. And I think a lot about the, yeah, I mean, the, the mark of a great documentary film is when you end it thinking that it should have been made into a series instead because there's just so much material. I mean, there, there are some documentaries that kind of by the hour mark are dragging their feet. And uh, that one, and, and Spaceship Earth is, is uh, kind of on the longer end of, of most documentaries that, or at least, you know, uh, many mainstream ones kind of clock out at 90 minutes. This one was just so fascinating, and I saw it, a, a great testament to the, the, the power of the film. I saw it at a press and industry screening where it's not unheard of for people to uh, play on their phones the whole time or leave. People were laughing. They were engaging. They, they, people were really, you know, John Allen is such a, a warm, is such a warm kind of energy. You can't help but, uh, you know, wish that, that, that in, in, we had more people like him in leadership positions. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I mean, it, it did, it was originally conceived of as a series I think what's the word? Funding didn't materialize for that, and then it morphed into a into a documentary film. I mean, I I also think you know uh, it's not the last word. I mean, I have more, more way more things to to write write and share about ecotechnics and and biospherics and the bio, the biosphere two experience was so great. I think if reincarnation is right, and I come back for ten lifetimes, I I hope I have some memories of that because. It was such a powerful, you know, really unforgettably transformative experience that, you know, it took me kind of 25 years of digestion before I could write Pushing Our Limits. Uh, and I'm still digesting that experience. And I do think that, you know, we need more Biosphere 2s, both as Earth System Laboratories and you know, we better have lots of them here so we know what we're dealing with when it really becomes life and death to put one, you know, into orbit or on the surface of the moon or Mars. You know, we need more of these things. And they're so potent as a public education. If we built Biosphere 2 now, everyone would get it. We wouldn't have to explain, you know, why we're building this thing. I think uh -huh. everyone would totally get it because... They know that we are in desperate need of some new insight and new kind of patterns for how we deal with biospheres. So do, do you think the media and I, I guess a lot of the, the when, when you read articles about either the film or, or your story, uh, there's a lot of attention given to the the um, the introducing the the oxygen in, into the biosphere and then also the the case where one of your biospherians had to leave because of a, a cut finger and then also the um duffel bags some, right and the the, the conflicts <laughs> that you i mean I, I, I we we've been talking for an hour and i haven't really mentioned the the conflict you know the the point where your your team sort of broke into factions so i mean like to a certain extent like Human humanity would be delusional if we think that we're going to send people to Mars and there's not going to be like some kind of conflict. Like I think I think we're almost like if if you can work together and that that was kind of the big takeaway of your uh, experience together. Like I, I don't really see why that's that all that relevant to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, what did Sally Silverstone, our captain, say to some interviewer? You know, we decided not to talk about our sex lives. 
or, you know, or that the mundane things that we're missing, you know, like uh, Roy Walford was a passionate scotch drinker and he obviously missed not having a butt, you know, because that kind of trivializes it. Now, you know, Jane started it and I'm happy to talk about all of that stuff because it is an interesting uh, question. And it is really difficult, even with eight people so dedicated and involved in the creation of Biosphere 2, that we had, yeah, it was difficult to be just eight people inside. It was a, a power struggle, and we won't give away the surprise of the surprise appearance of someone who, whose name is familiar to Americans uh, now, <laughs> and, all, yeah. and all of that. But you know that <laughs> that power struggle also, I think, ex, uh, exacerbated the tensions between us. Now, did we fall into four, you know, two factions? Yes and no, because we all continued working flawlessly with each other. No one ever sabotaged anyone else's research. And we put in extra hours to maximize the amount of research that we would accomplish. You know, so to, the human issue is, is really important. And I think I, I sound that note in pushing our limits is you know, we, we chose this word, this term biospherian, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, to roll off of your tongue, but we did it with a good thought in, in mind that people would contemplate how the biospherians lived inside Biosphere 2. And then, you know, like in the cartoons, when the light bulb goes on, is it over their head or inside their head? Anyway, kind of, they would yeah, say, kind of, oh, and what am I? I am a biospherian of planet Earth. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I, I people talk about this like um, sometimes the, the idea that, you know, we went to the moon in 1969. Obviously, NASA and, and the space space race has made a lot of uh uh, advances since then. I mean, one of one of my close friends who is obsessed with uh, plants is uh, really is a, a passionate um, botanist or ecologist or um, whatever the term she would use. But her her partner works for SpaceX instead of like places like like Boeing, um, specifically because he wants to be part of the Mars expedition. And I think that that the the excitement about that and the passion. Is, is alive in a lot of people and what 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 your team was able to do in in the 90s was was get people excited and i look at like i mean i i work in politics a lot and and we're always on the, on the left we're uh annoyed with the way the media frames a lot of our topics because it, it it you know the surface focus on infighting or you know we get caught they get caught in 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 terminology and all of that and it becomes very difficult to break through and then try to explain like no this is what we really want to do and I, I, I think that what, what you and your team were able to create was something that, uh, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine in a, the, the amount of uh, talks you've given and, and the people you've inspired. I mean, that's that's really is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my main count, and of course, you know, it's a, it's a mixed blessing to become high profile. You know, we had deliberately done all of our projects pretty low profile, and that was the expectation. But, you know, we wouldn't have reached a billion people, you know, who watched a version of our re-entry when we left uh, when we left Biosphere Two and came back to planet Earth, so to speak. But you know the problem with uh, you know media, especially corporate media, is that they have an agenda which is sensation. You know, and so right. they won't they won't deal. They only focused on Biosphere Two as a precursor to a Mars base, not on its very 
more potent, probably, ability to give us insight into ecological issues on planet Earth. And, you know, so one of the things that I would have redone in a different way was made, you know, just drummed into every journalist that we spoke to, every press release we put out, that Biosphere 2 was a kick-ass experiment. It was an experiment. We didn't expect that we wouldn't get it right at first. In fact, what's really surprising is that we even lasted two years inside, you know, albeit with some oxygen put in there. You know, so we were excoriated, and I think partly, you know, we were naive and didn't formulate it right. I mean, the long-term goal was to figure out how to make Biosphere 2 essentially not require any material inputs from the outside. But, you know, if you're running an experiment, the only failure is if you don't learn anything. So, you know, it may be fatuous, but in fact, all of these unexpected challenges and even design screw-ups that happened, they added to our knowledge of how biospheres operate. That oxygen decline also stimulated, you know, it was was fascinating in so many ways. We were climbing a mountain kind of because the amount of oxygen in the air was less. But in fact, we were at 3,900 feet. You know, Biosphere 2 was not moving up, you know, the side of a mountain nearby. And we didn't kick in what mountain mountain climbers have. We didn't start producing more red blood cells and the other physiological adaptations. So it's only in a place like Biosphere 2 that you can sometimes separate uh, vectors that are inextricably connected. And another reason that Biosphere 2 is controversial was that it uh, combined both holistic total system science and reductionist, you know, detailed analytic science. And for some reason, that's really unfortunate, those two camps tend to snipe at each other. And especially reductionist science gets most of the research grants and the prestige and all of that, they tend to think that holistic science isn't science at all. So it was ine- yeah. it was inevitable that Biosphere 2 would become controversial, but that it would be trivialized into, you know, it's an Olympic contest to see if we can stay in there for two years and not have to bring in food or oxygen. That was not the... the that's not the point of a, of a scientific experiment. Yeah, and I, I think the media took a little uh, too many shots at the. I mean, I think it's it's personally. I think it's very wonderful that um, so many uh, from John Allen to to Roy to uh, yourself had had interest in theater and all of that because you want when you're thinking of these kind of expeditions, you want well rounded people who are able to adapt and also. Uh, express themselves. And I, I think the arts, uh, can get, uh, frowned upon in a lot of that. And I, I read somewhere that, um, somebody said that if, if they were trapped in the, the Amazon, that, uh, your team would, would, would be kind of the people that they would want to surround themselves with that you guys were able to, uh, be prepared for everything. And, um, you know, the film, I, I'm really perhaps most, uh, excited about having you on, on this show is this film is widely available on Hulu. So everybody listening can, well, if you're international, you'll have to, uh, it's all, it's on Amazon prime. And I think you could even read it on YouTube. It's out there. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is really, I mean, sometimes we have people on whose who stuff are uh, a bit harder to find or they're not in a streaming service. This one, I mean, this one, this is one I've been recommending for a while, especially in, in the COVID era, because it's just, it's so fascinating. Um, I almost didn't get to see it at Sunday. It, it, there had been a screening in New York and, uh, they had done pre-screenings for a lot of the foreign films in New York and LA. And I'd been invited like five times to the New York screening. And I'm like, look, stop inviting me to this that I can't, you know, can't go to out here or send me the screener. Cause I want to watch this. And, uh, a person that the uh, listeners of the show would know, Michelle Jaworski, a fellow critic who's been on a few times, uh, had seen it at the New York screening and was saying, Oh my God, you have to see this. Everybody was raving about it. And I mean, there's like 80 films at Sundance plus all the shorts. So, I mean, that's, that's a achievement in and of itself. And I only got to see it because it was clashing with some of the assignments that I was on and they added another screening, which was back to back with another. And I had to exit the tent because Sundance Park City, they have all their rules. And I got, I, I got there. It was the last night I was there and I was just, so I, I was remarkable. I was very, very happy with leaving just the sense of awe and wonder. And, you know, the, the the part of why I kind of love people always snipe at millennials, all of that. We're a very curious generation. And, you know, the, the ability to have people like yourself on to come and talk about your life's work and stuff. Uh, it's, it's so fascinating. And this has been such an enriching conversation. Well, I, I do hope it inspires. And I, I guess both for myself and for my publishers, <laughs> you know, hopefully spaceship earth, you know, inspires you there. There are videos. I think there's an echo technics channel on YouTube. There's some wonderful uh, kind of video tours inside Biosphere two that we produce and, and other things. And there's two books. The, the one that Ian, you've been talking about, it was published two years ago, Pushing Our Limits, Insights from Bias for Two, published by the University of Arizona Press. And just last uh, Earth Day, uh, a second edition of Life Under Glass that I wrote with the two other Biospherians. It's called Crucial Lessons in Planetary Stewardship from Two Years in Bias for Two. But just remember Life Under Glass and get the new edition of it. That's that's uh, published here at Sinegar Ranch by synergetic press so we will uh link to um your book and uh any, anything else you'd like your uh website um i can't recommend seeing uh spaceship earth uh, enough this is just it, it's fascinating P people people who engage with this stuff and as as john allen kind of uh lived his life you know when you when you push yourself to to try new things and all of that you uh i, I think it's it's absolutely wonderful and important to uh, having a well uh well-rounded life so so dr nelson thank you thank you so much for coming on this is oh wonderful. It, it's really been fun we probably could, could have taught for two more hours but listeners would have probably you know fallen asleep at the wheel <laughs> well uh we'd uh we'd love to have you back sometime this is uh it's been really exciting and uh thank you so much and to our uh listeners thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time